Yeah, well, you know, most people would advise against discussing these type of topics, right? Because if they say, you're just going to get in trouble, right? But uh, I feel like, uh, you know, we need to get in some trouble because if you play it always too safe, it just doesn't work out. It's not good for the world. Okay, Jeff, so today is going to be another special episode because we have a guest. A guest? Excellent. Yes. Dr. Andy Yen is the founder and CEO of Proton Technologies. That's the people behind Proton Mail and Proton VPN. And I asked Andy to come on and talk with us today because of an article that he wrote for Proton Mail and Proton VPN titled, Why Big, Big Tech Plat- Deplatforming Should Be Deeply Disturbing for Everyone Regardless of Your Politics. And Andy, when I read this article, I knew that I wanted to talk to you about this because this is an incredibly important topic. And sadly, it seems that it's always approached from a political angle. And with as polarized as things are right now, obviously, that's a problem because people will immediately agree or disagree, not based on the merits of the argument, but whether your example happens to be something that they agree or disagree with. And I really believe that this is a foundational issue that needs to be approached from a truly apolitical aspect. Now, I will link the article down in the show notes for everyone to go read later. But to start off, can you give us kind of a quick overview of your thoughts on the issue? Well, it's an incredibly complicated issue. This is why we wrote an article on it. Uh, So we could discuss this for hours and hours on end. But I want to echo the main point you brought up, which is just because the issue is uncomfortable, just because the answer is not obvious, just because it's not easy to figure out you know, what is right from wrong, doesn't mean that this is not something that society should be discussing. And the reason uh, you know, I published the article was I wanted to get it out there, right, into our civic discourse, get people thinking about the problem, and to really try to look at it from a non-political standpoint. Because if you do it from a political standpoint, you know, people shut down, the argument doesn't happen. And without this discussion, this really fundamental discussion, democracy in the 21st century really doesn't work. So, you know, this is why for me it's important to talk about the issue and to put it out there to stir up the discussions, even if they're not comfortable, right? Because we want to take people out of the comfort zone, make them think about the problems in new ways, and then that's how we can come up with new solutions for society as well. Yeah, a lot of the time that I hear people discussing this, uh, the term that gets used is marketplace of ideas. And I, I, I really dislike that term because not because I think it's invalid or or an incorrect term, but it seems that the moment that marketplace word gets tacked on, that it brings about the whole concept of economics. And there's huge debates about economics these days. And again, I think that's a point where the discussion kind of gets skewed and then it runs off in a different direction and then the discussion gets broken down. And sometimes I wish that there was another term that we could use to describe, you know, the sharing of information, the examination of evidence, discussion, debate, and then communal consensus by individuals. Um, But then I think, oh, right, we do. It's called the scientific method. (laughs) And I kind of find it astonishing that in today's high-tech modern world that it's even necessary to explain to people how rigorous debate and investigation of ideas is a good thing. I mean, if people enjoy their iPhones, if they enjoy being able to stream movies or get in their car and drive wherever they want, well, the only reason those things exist is because individuals were able to challenge each other and challenge ideas. And I'm going to guess, just take a wild guess here, that as you're from CERN, you're probably a big fan of the scientific method. 
Yeah, you know, we like to look at things, of course, from a very logical uh, standpoint, right? Um, of course, everything in the world, you know, humans are emotional creatures, right? We drive off of emotion. But at the same time, you know, in order to have fruitful discussions with people that disagree with you, you need to take the emotion out of the discussion sometimes and look at it from a very objective standpoint. And when we, you know, look at an issue such as deplatforming, there's really, I would say, kind of the intersection of three major issues, right? One is really the issue of speech. What is the meaning of free speech? What does free speech mean in the 21st century? And you know, how do we characterize, understand, and make free speech work in the digital era, right? Then there's the question of kind of, you know, technology. And technology is changing the world, uh, has changed the world, it will continue to change the world. So what is the relationship between technology and free speech? Then the third point you brought up, market dominance in antitrust issues. Uh, this is, of course, also hugely relevant because at the end of the day, technology is you know, empowering economics, right? Uh, this is, so, so you cannot consider the issue without looking at all, all three angles. And a mistake we often see is you know, some people look at it from a free speech absolutionist standpoint, but that's completely you know, missing the other elements of the question that also must be considered together. So I think proper understanding of the issue really involves you know, walking through free speech, walking through technology, and also walking through uh, the antitrust angle. Yeah, I think I think that's a very key point because those build on top of each other. The market dominance of tech is obviously based on technology and the way that technology is changing the way we view speech obviously depends on having speech in the first place. So so let's start let's start on the free speech point before we get to the others because the thing that kind of stood out to me the other day when I was thinking about this was we've been here before many times as a species. I mean, how many people have heard of Galileo Galilei? The powers that be in the 16th century deemed his work was heretical and against truth. And he spent the rest of his life under house arrest because of that. His works and writings were banned. They couldn't be owned or printed. He was barred from speaking about heliocentrism. And it took hundreds of years for that restriction to be officially lifted. And I've heard, although to be transparent, I haven't found any actual writings on this. I've heard that, you know, at the time of Galileo's trial, Pope Urban, I think it was Urban, he was under basically himself being kind of criticized for not defending the church strong enough to different threats. So he kind of gave in to a little bit of mob rule within kind of the church culture and came down hard on Galileo because, well, he needed to, to show, show a force, so to speak, the, the virtue signaling of what we would say today. And, you know, so effectively Galileo was, to use again terminology from the day, canceled in part due to pressure to silence speech that the powers that be didn't approve of. And, you know, it's important for us to remember that the people who are doing censoring usually always believe they're doing it for the right reasons. It, it rarely is just, oh, let's screw this guy in particular. There's, there's a very specific issue that they're trying to defend or attack or defend from what they perceive as an attack. The irony for me being for the Catholic Church in this case was that the foundational figure of Catholicism, Jesus, was put on trial and executed for speaking his teachings that the powers that be didn't like. And I, I've noticed that, you know, human history, it has example after example of, of this kind of thing, and it, it never goes well. You know, in antiquity, deplatforming is what we would call it today, is, was just, well, effectively summary execution. One of the cornerstones of Athenian democracy was the right to address the assembly and the ability to speak one's mind. Um, the right to Isagoria and Parousia. I think I got those pronunciations right. My, my Greek is, is horrible. But this led Euripides in one of his plays, and I can't, I'm not going to be able to 
quote it perfectly off the top of my head, but it was along the lines of to not be able to speak one's thoughts was effectively a form of slavery because you're bound against doing what you wanted to do as a free person. And yet Socrates was put to death for speaking freely. And this is a kind of a fine point that I, I want to make clear so the listeners know where I'm coming from. And that is Isagoria was the, the right to address the assembly, i.e. kind of the equality of all people was established there. And parousia was the ability to speak one's mind. And those two things are unique. And I'm not trying to split hairs here, I promise. Isagoria was a right. Parousia was an act. It was an ability to act. However, it could have had consequences. And that was why Socrates was killed. One of the things that the Enlightenment did was it united Isagoria with the concept of logos in kind of an idealized concept, giving people the right to debate, to discourse a subject. However, again, there were no protections at the time. The, the First Amendment in the U.S. and other similar declarations later in other countries then unified Isagoria and Logos with parousia, giving citizens not only the equality in that they had the right to speak and debate, but a legal protection from doing so. Um, in, I think it was in On Liberty, uh, John Stuart Mill didn't defend free speech, focusing on the, just the ability to speak words, which is usually what comes up in arguments today, but rather the individual freedom of thought and discussion in a collective pursuit of truth. And Mill argued that the principal threat to free speech and democracies was actually not the state, but what he coined the social tyranny of one's fellow citizens, which we kind of see today online and with big tech, where a mob will get stirred up around what someone said, things go crazy, people are screaming and yelling, posting all over the place on the internet, and then internet, uh, the site or a company then responds and does something about the person for what they said. You know, Spinoza and Kant, for them, free speech was kind of a primary intellectual freedom to participate in the public exchange of arguments. Kant insisted that uh, the freedom to make use of one's reason was a fundamental right. Um, and he wrote, you know, thoughts without content are empty, intuitions without concepts are blind. And the ability to speak, of course, first depends on your ability to conceptualize. And through restrictions of what someone can hear and discuss, you then restrict what they can even know and conceptualize. And for me, this is the key danger. The downstream effect of limiting speech is that you limit what future generations can even come to think of because they're insulated from ideas. And this is a lesson that we've learned for a very long time over and over again, but yet we keep having to learn it. And, and here we are again in the modern age, once again, having the, the discussion in society of, of whether or not exchange of ideas of any idea should be permitted. Yeah, I think if you look at just the U.S. Constitution, right? Why, you know, the First Amendment, it's first for a reason. It's the First Amendment. It's the first one that was written because it's, in fact, you know, free speech is the most important uh, building block of democracy, right? Without that, the whole democratic process doesn't work. But at the same time, I think there's also, like, like you mentioned, a pretty widespread, you know, uh, misconception of what is the meaning of free speech, right? And it's, it's far more nuanced than you're, you're free to say anything you want, right? That's just for people that only read the text and don't think deeper about this, right? So when we see discussions about free speech online, oftentimes there's a notion that, you know, free speech implies that any speech uh, should be permitted. But 
if we go back, you know, into sort of legal case studies and precedents and, you know, jurisprudence over the past 300 years, that's just not the case, right? Uh, for example, you know, giving a false testimony at a trial, that's speech that is not permitted, right? You must tell the truth uh, when you're on the stand. So, you know, you don't have free speech when you're in court, right? There's other examples of this, you know, you, you can't call fire in a crowded theater and cause a stampede and cause people to get you know, killed, right? That's not acceptable as, as well. And then another example is, you know, false advertising, right? You know, we don't allow, allow people to do false advertising because, you know, that has consumer harm, right? And I think, you know, in a similar vein to, you know, false advertising, defamation, right? You can't go out there and, you know, defame people without consequences, right? Uh, you know, you need to speak truth. So it's, I, I think the first thing is like, you know, we have the knowledge that you know, free speech is extremely important, but there also needs to be certain guidelines and boundaries in which, you know, free speech is constrained. And where do we draw the line between letting people say anything they want uh, and some control of free speech? Well. I think what we need to put online is what is the overall benefit to society, right? What is the overall utility to society, right? So, you know, if you have completely unrestricted free speech, you have complete chaos, right? But at the same time, if you limit free speech too much, uh, you have situations where Galileo, for example, cannot publish and cannot figure out that the Earth revolves around the sun, right? Science is hindered, innovation is hindered. A lot of ideas and progress, you know, human progress itself is hindered, right? Uh, our forms of government, uh, you know, will not operate correctly without free speech. So it's, it's really acknowledging that this is extremely important. And then once we acknowledge that, then the question becomes who should control free speech in the 21st century, right? And that really takes us to the topic of the technology and the platforms that exist today. We can get into the reasons why it's structured the way it is today. But more or less, the internet today is controlled by a handful of companies, you know, maybe three or four companies, the biggest ones, right? You have Google, you have Facebook, Apple, and then I suppose Twitter is in that list as well, right? But it's, it's, it's a short list of companies. And the consequence of the evolution of technology is that today our public town halls or our public squares are essentially monopolized by big tech companies. And what is the purpose of a public square? Well, public square, the purpose of it is to have a place to discuss, right? For ideas to be exchanged. And today, if your public square is controlled by a company, then actually, you know, these companies, very small number of them, can have complete freedom without any regulation to set what is permitted or not permissible, uh, you know, speech within a public square. And this is problematic because we have public square that is extremely important for a functioning of a democracy now under the control of a private party. And this private party, uh, for example, you know, the CEOs of big tech companies, they're not elected, they're not there to represent interested people. There is no system that provides any checks or balances to hold them into account, right? And so the public spaces that are now essential for you know dem democracy to work, to drive public discourse, essentially don't have any accountability that ensures that you know they are acting in the best interest of citizens. And this, in a nutshell, is the fundamental risk to democracy in the 21st century. Yeah, because democracy fundamentally functions on the governed being able to address ills by the people who are doing the governing. I mean, you know, if a politician does something horrible that hurts the citizenry, well, the, the citizenry can can vote that person out of office. I can't vote out a corporate board. 
I can't vote out members of a trust and safety board. Um, in the article that you wrote, you mentioned that you know, things are done. And then, of course, the, the reason comes out of, oops, we're sorry, that was an error. And that only happens after massive public outcry. And then it's reversed. But if there's all these errors that we know of that are then admitted to because of the outcry, of course, how many errors, and again, errors with big air quotes, uh, are, are going on every day that we don't know about? And the other problem that I see is that there's really no appeal process. There's no transparent oversight. You know, if a police officer continues to arrest people wrongly, or if a prosecutor manipulates evidence to convict people, eventually they will be dealt with. The justice system has a way to deal with bad actors. Yes, it is slow. Yes, it's arduous. But it exists. Whereas for tech companies, these trust and safety boards, there's no transparency. There's no oversight to ensure that the people who are making these determinations are doing so logically and not just making decisions from an ideological bent. Um, I mean, we we can look at multiple examples where you know account A will do a thing and it's fine. Account B will do the same thing, but that one gets banned. There, there seems to be no clear rule of law, as we would say, for how these things are determined. And the terms of service are subjective to the point that they can be kind of translated and massaged to mean what they need to mean based on what the person doing the review wants. And I'm always very concerned with that kind of power with no oversight, because even if it starts with the best intentions, because there's that, there's that old line of always assume incompetence before you assume malice, even assuming that every person on these boards has the best of intentions that they could possibly have, where there is power to be gained People with ill intent will gravitate towards it. And even if these boards started with 100% angels, eventually they're going to be filled with people that recognize this is a position of power and I can use this position of power to push an agenda that I have. Yeah. And I think also, you know, tech companies are fundamentally different from governments, right? You know, governments, at least in democracies, you know, are nominally here to serve the people, right? Uh, tech companies' roles is to make as much money as possible and benefit their owners, right? Uh, and there's a fundamental misalignment of interest there. And it's a very hard problem, right? It's very complex if you want to get into this. Um, but if you look at it kind of more closely, in fact, when it comes to the future of the internet, we really have a binary choice, right? Uh, and look, both choice suck, but I'll just tell them what they are, right? The first one is you can leave the governance of the internet completely up to big tech. Uh, and that is essentially conceding that the internet in the future is only going to serve a handful of companies and in the interests of a couple you know, of people, right? So that's option A. Um, option B is to pass laws and regulations uh, through a democratic process, no matter you know, how flawed democracy may be, right? But regulates what tech giants can and can't do. Uh, and this at least nominally returns power of the internet to the people. Uh, who are responsible for electing uh, your representatives who then pass the laws and regulations. Now, some people don't like approach B because that's essentially saying, you know, we're giving government power over free speech, right? And a lot of people don't like the idea of government meddling in speech. And, you know, they are wary of that because there are examples of government meddling in speech in places like, you know, Russia and China, where that also doesn't end well, right? But if we fundamentally trust the strength of our democratic institutions uh, here in the West, right, given 
the option between you know democratic process and regulation and legislation versus an oligarchy that is you know making decisions on their own without oversight. I think if we believe in democracy, we need to pick the second. Uh, you know, we need to pick the option, which is let's pass laws and regulations to regulate tech companies and you know um, control what they can and can do. Yeah, I think myself and i'm pretty sure jeff and i'm pretty sure most or most of our listeners would agree that leaving it up to the tech companies is probably a bad idea because well that's how we got here so it hasn't worked out too well for us <laughs> the other thing that comes up though when i think about getting the government involved which in the episode that jeff and i recorded recently we touched on is that these days big tech is actually more powerful than many nation states and that changes the dynamic a lot because obviously, as we mentioned, democratic governments are subject to their people. Uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc. These aren't. And I see, I, well, I just don't see. I have experienced that a lot of government entities are kind of ceding the ground to big tech. Uh, one of the issues that I brought up with Jeff was in places that I've lived, the, the local sheriff's department will put out community bulletin alerts for the citizens over Facebook. Now, they could have an RSS feed and they could do other alert systems, but it's all done on Facebook. So in order to interface with the sheriff's department, you have to have a Facebook account and follow them so that you can get the notices of what's going on. So if somebody escapes from the local jail or whatever, you then get, oh, okay, there's somebody that's gotten loose. I need to keep my eyes out. So I don't, me and my family are protected. But the only way you can get that now is through Facebook. And now, with COVID going on, you're not even allowed to go into the sheriff's department office and look on the board that, you know, we used to have in the history, which would have all the notices posted. That's gone because, well, Facebook's the answer. And I see this as a big problem because what we have done is we haven't just ceded kind of the, the, the rights of who gets to determine what is allowed on the internet to big tech, but we've actually ceded to big tech who even gets to interface with the government at all? And I don't see how it's going to be easy to pull that back because the other issue that comes up is that with the government, with a democracy, criminal law exists. And if you if you do something that's wrong, if you get vi if you break the law, you're sentenced, you're convicted, you then pay your debt to society, and then after that is done, your rights are restored. Whereas with big tech, their bans are permanent. I mean, we've we've hit a weird spot where you're actually almost better off being tried in a criminal court and found guilty and convicted because there's a finality to that sentence. At some point, you will be done with your punishment and you will be able to rejoin society and get your rights back. However, with big tech, if you're under an investigation by trust and safety or one of these other safety commissions at one of these companies and they deem that you're banned, well, you're done. And there's no objective, like in the criminal system where we have a jury of your peers, that doesn't exist in big tech. It's just, well, the team decided that you're gone. And while some sites may have a button where you can appeal, you're asking the people who just banned you to then undo what they just decided to do, which is not going to work out, again, unless there's huge public outcry, which on some cases has worked out well. But for the individual, if you get banned, you're done. There's no adjudication process. There's no debate. It's just, we've made a decision and that's it. And then you're cut off from everything, like with Facebook, for people who have been banned from Facebook. They're now cut off from everything that now uses Facebook, including their own government. Yeah. So in a certain extent, it's you know, 
the ship has sailed, right? When it comes to big tech, they've hit a scale and hit a size where at this point, there's not a lot that governments can do. In fact, some of these companies now are, you know, more wealthy and more powerful and more influential than governments themselves, right? This is just the reality of the current situation. Then also, if you look at internet, like, you know, social media, right? Social media is something that has very strong network effects that, you know, depend very strongly on having everybody on the same platform for it to be valuable for everybody there, right? There are instances in internet where there are natural monopolies, but monopolies are not something new for democracies to deal with, right? They've existed for hundreds of years, and, you know, there are still some that exist today. For example, you know, it's not reasonable for, a, you know, a mid-sized town to have three different power plants, right? Uh, you're going to have one power plant that serves that region, right? So, you know, in that sense, your local utility is a monopoly. But that doesn't mean it cannot be managed, right? When it comes to, let's say, insurance companies, utilities, banks, uh, you know, food safety, tons of other different areas, we manage these situations by having very clear regulations and laws that document what can and can't be done and clarify the situation, right? And the issue with big tech is these are companies that have massive monopolies. And yet today, there is not a single piece of legislation or regulation that regulates what they can and cannot do. And that's actually the issue, right? So this is why it becomes so important for there to be some regulation, to be some you know, legislation, uh, you know, to be some control. Some people think about you know, regulation as a bad word, but when you get the companies you know, at a certain scale, you know, especially in monopoly situations, you must have the regulation. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. So I want to interject here. Um... We have been having this conversation with the context of of public square. You had stated earlier, public square is a place for ideas to be discussed. I agree with that. But the context is that these big tech companies are the ones defining the public square. And I was puzzling over that and trying to figure out why I was bothered by that conclusion. And it's the, I think it's more like the large tech companies have created a hotel with many rooms in it and a large adjoining convention center. And all the conversation is happening inside the hotel. It is a private entity. And within that private entity, they can do as they wish. We are complaining because the conversations we want to be a part of, be a part of are inside those hotels, and, and someone who's been banned is no longer inside a hotel. What is to stop someone from leaving the metaphorical hotel to have these conversations? Wouldn't it make sense for us to, as a way of seeding or grabbing some control back from these companies, requesting that these important discussions, everybody move outside, where we can actually have a conversation with, with anybody who's banned? That may be. It's difficult to accomplish, but I think would be uh, a little bit more, we would not require regulation, we'll say. It's, there's perhaps it's a third solution that we could pursue. Yes, yes. So that's actually a very good point, right? And that brings us to really the third pillar of this discussion, which is antitrust, right? The root of the problem here is that in many cases, there is just one or two hotels in town, and you have to go to one of these well, you know, one of these hotels or your debt, right? And not only that, anybody that attempts to create a third hotel is going to get put out of business by the people that run the first two hotels who don't want competition in their space. And in a certain extent, this is precisely the problem that Proton has in, in this case, right? Take Apple, for instance. You know, Apple ten, runs one of those hotels, right? When it comes to mobile, there's two hotels. There's basically Android and iOS, right? And both these hotels say to a new player like Proton, hey, you must pay us 30% of your revenue in order to have a presence online, right, uh, on mobile. And 
if you look at this from a business standpoint, that's absurd, right? How can you compete with somebody if you're forced to give them a third of your revenue? It's simply not competitive. And then people ask, why are there no you know, alternatives to Apple and Google when it comes to mobile, mobile stores, right? Uh, well, you know, that's, that's the reason why. So the, we're in the situation that we're in today because it's really what I call a massive neglect or even a you know, failure of duty on the part of government officials, you know, both Democrat and Republican in the U.S., but you know, it's left, right, center, across the entire political spectrum there has been a massive neglect over the past uh, 20 years. And what essentially happened is these tech companies have been allowed to essentially get to monopoly situations, 90 plus percent market shares, without anybody actually lifting a finger to do anything, right? They were just able to continue on growing without any control, any oversight. And if you go to the historical cases of you know, antitrust, you know, when Standard Oil, Oil was broken up, its market dominance was far less than what Google and Facebook has today in some markets, right? So the failure here in the system is really a failure from lawmakers and regulators to act earlier when it's still possible. You know, now they're trying to play catch up and you know, make changes, but these organizations have gotten so powerful that in fact it's very, very difficult to make any changes now. Now, delaying this further is not going to make it any better, right? So it becomes extremely important, I think, both in the EU and the US for lawmakers to take action now, because in fact, if they don't do it in the next couple of years, there will be no chance at all ever to, to do this. Uh, and this is why it's, it's a critical issue. And this is why, you know, there needs to be some antitrust regulation. And it's not even, even about letting the company, letting the government, you know, set what the prices should be or breaking up companies, right? What we want is we want to create the conditions so that other innovators and other entrepreneurs can go out and build you know, compelling alternatives, you know, build other hotels, as you put it. And then this will by itself natu naturally restore balance to the marketplace. And if the marketplace has balance and it's self-regulating, then actually you can remove away the regulations, right? And that's the best solution. So this is why, you know, if you don't want to have government regulating speech, then the best alternative is actually to create a situation where you have a competitive market that will actually self-regulate. So say we've already seen this uh, playbook before. If we go back to 1900, the uh, 1900 election, most of the discussion that really mattered, I think, was about uh, the issue of the trust and massive corporate power. I've been watching this uh, show called The Men That Built America, focusing on the capitalist industrialists from the post-Civil War era on through about 1900. And they did create America, part of you know, the industrial power that we know today, a lot of them, was built uh, out of patterns that these men started or, or choices that they made, but they were definitely monopolistic. And then everybody was recognizing, hey, this is really a big problem, much like where we are now. And they did something about it. We have legislation, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which came out of these discussions. It took uh, four to seven years for the legislation to actually be passed, but they were talking about it as early as 1900. How do we take care of this looming problem of these businesses that are so big and so powerful and have you know ninety percent, ninety five percent ownership of this one market. What do we do about that? So I'm wondering, can we use the legislation that we already have to start going after after the large hotel owners now? Well, uh, you know that's that's a good question, and there's really two ways to look at this, right? First of all, 
Congress and Department of Justice in the U.S. Uh, and also actually European Commission in the EU has always had this power, as you said. These powers have been, at least in the U.S., around for 100 years, in the EU at least since the very early days of the EU. And if you look at it, it has not actually been applied by the government on any meaningful scale since the 80s, right? Uh, the last time that it was used was the breakup of, I think, you know, Ma Bell back in the 1980s. So you've had this giant technology, tech revolution with the birth of the internet 30 years now, where the government has simply neglected its duty to apply antitrust laws. So it's not a matter of having laws. It's, to a certain extent, why isn't there the political will, the determination, and the legislators and regulators taking their responsibility to citizens and actually applying it, right? Uh, you know, in fact, we probably should vote, we should probably should vote out the whole lot and replace them all, right? Because uh, they've completely failed in their duty. Uh, so that's the first part. Then the second part is the law itself, right? You mentioned Sherman Antitrust Law. This law was actually written in 1890. So it's now 130 years old. It, you know, when it was written, there were no planes. There wasn't even a car, right? Electricity was not even a thing yet. Right, much less the internet. So we're trying to take 130-year-old legislation to regulate tech companies in internet on digital marketplaces, you know, which are completely you know different from what the framers of Sherman Antitrust had in mind when they drafted that law. So to a certain extent, uh, it's sort of like bringing a hammer to a gunfight. Right, uh, you're going to lose. <laughs> You know, how can you expect uh, Congress and DOJ to be successful if that's the tool they have at hand, right? You ask them to fight a modern war with a hammer. It doesn't work. So we need, essentially, you know, lawmakers and regulators that, to put it frankly, have guts, right, to do something. And we also need the legislation to be updated to adapt to the new business reality of the 21st century. Yeah, so on the antitrust point, I mean, I strongly believe that antitrust is not a bad word. I mean... The primary focus of a government is to serve its citizenry. And if the citizenry is being harmed by a corporation, well, it's the duty of the government to react and protect their citizens. I mean, I don't see that as any different than a government protecting its citizens from a foreign threat. But I almost wonder if regulation isn't just needed, but is effectively the only alternative. Because to me, this really seems like the issue is more than what a corporation can even handle. They're, they're, they are doomed to fail. If you look at the justice system in the United States, it is enormous because of all the checks and balances that are put in to protect someone who's accused from being harmed wrongly if they actually aren't guilty. And with respect to content moderation, I mean, this is an extraordinarily complex problem for tech platforms. You know, if you have 100 million users, how do you feasibly manage that kind of content and that volume? You know, if, if you're Twitter and you get, say, 100 reports one day about an account, I mean, to properly investigate that and see if all those reports are from unique users or do these people all know each other? Is this just a, a small gang grouping together to go after one person? Are they all coming from the same IPs? To, to check everything, to check the context around the tweet, that would take one person an entire day to properly investigate one tweet. And that's just not realistic on the scale of hundreds of millions of users. And, you know, so it's no wonder that it takes Twitter months to get around to reports. There's just, they don't have the manpower. And if you look at like the US and the EU, the US has approximately, I think it's like 300 million people. The EU, I think is around 450 million. 
there are probably tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people working in those justice systems. But if you then look at like Facebook, Twitter, and, and Google, well, they probably have a thousand. So is this something that tech companies even have the ability to handle without having content moderation systems, so to speak, that are staffed with that many people? And I don't think that's the route to go down, but there needs to be some balance because right now it seems that the, the pattern is just a, a hammer that gets wielded non-uniformly based on what people are thinking and feeling at the time. And that's not good for any of us. Yeah. So it's definitely a very big challenge for tech companies. But I am, you know, I can tell you my belief is that I don't believe governments can do it better. Yeah. In fact, in many situations, there are a few things that, you know, government actually, you know, does better. Right. I mean, the, the one exception that we see is some interest in healthcare, where government is very good at that. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, uh, government doesn't do things better. So if we don't want the government to do it, and the current tech companies are failing at it, we have to ask the question, you know, why are tech companies so bad at it? Right? You know, why are they creating so many issues? And the reason they're bad at this is because they today are operating you know, off a business model that doesn't you know, compel them to be good at this, right? In fact, Facebook makes more money and sells more ads when there's more controversial content that causes people to share and perpetuate fake news, right? So their financial incentive is not actually to clean up the platform, but actually to drive more controversy, which drives more clicks and more you know, um, ad sales, right? In fact, it is the divisiveness of society today which is indirectly contributing to the profits of tech companies, right? And people, of course, from all parts of life, uh, from the political left and right, are fed up with this. But the tech companies, because they're monopolies, don't have an incentive to improve because what are your options, right? You know, if you don't want to use Twitter because of bad moderation, if you don't like you know, Facebook because it's biased, where are you going to go? The answer is nowhere. So this is, again, for antitrust uh, and regulations around antitrust can help solve the problem. Because imagine if these social media platforms and these big tech companies were in industries that were truly competitive, uh, right, for competition, right? And imagine there were laws and regulations in place that would have sufficient penalties where it becomes a financial problem for them to not clean up their acts. Then you can imagine that, A, they would act completely differently because they would, because the fines had teeth and wanted to stop on the wrist, they'd have to take that seriously, right? And then if there were other social media platforms that were out there who were doing a much better job and much better reputations for privacy uh, and, you know, all these other issues, then in fact, they would also be compelled to clean up their act, right? To play fair and improve the overall experience for users. So you know, my view is that the solution is not to bring in government to, you know, moderate content because that's not scalable, that's sustainable, right? But we, government needs to create policies you know, through antitrust and regulation such that there, be, there is a natural incentive for companies to clean up their act. And there is competition, which forces you know, companies to be as good as they can in this area. So one question I, I, that comes to mind, and I, I'm not directly asking you as the CEO of ProtonMail how you guys handle it. Um, I'm asking more generally. If you want to get specific, feel free. But I'm just asking kind of in a general, uh, general aspect. I've heard some people say that the proper solution is for companies to just kind of step back from the whole moderation point and say, well, we're just going to follow the law. If it violates the law of whatever country, then yes, we're not going to allow that. However, laws vary by countries. So as a any platform who is providing a service, 
you run into the the contradiction or the complication where what may be legal in one country might be completely illegal in another. The uh, Charlie Hebdo issue comes to mind. Um, now, stepping aside from the resulting shooting, which I think everyone who listens to this show would agree was absolutely wrong, what Charlie Hebdo published and printed was 100% legal in France. It would probably have not have been illegal in, say, Iran or Saudi Arabia. How should tech companies respond when they run into that contradiction of what is allowed by one country but isn't allowed by another? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. It's, uh, you know, so that topic goes quite deep into human rights issues. And there is a, so, so, so I can give the perspective of how ProTomino looks at that, but I can also give the human rights perspective, right? I'll give a very kind of contemporary example. Today, people are literally being murdered in Myanmar, right? Uh, so this is a form of Burma, right? Uh, we've had more than 200 fatalities. This is just a UN count. The actual number on the ground of death is probably a lot more, right? We have live ammunition being fired into crowds, right? And ProtonMail and ProtonVPN is one of the ways in which people have been getting information about these atrocities out into the world. And in fact, the UN last week on Wednesday, when they said, please report to us and document human rights you know, abuses in Myanmar, they said, use Proton, right? On the same day that the UN made that announcement, Apple stepped in to block us from putting out security updates on ProtonVPN. And why did Apple object to that? Apple objected to that because Proton VPN was um, advertised and known to be a product that could, you know, quote unquote, and this is like their direct quote, challenge governments, right? So I have to ask a question, right? If a government is out there murdering its own citizens on the street with live ammunition, shouldn't that government be challenged? And shouldn't tech companies like Apple have a moral authority or, or at least an obligation to stand up to that, right? So. Yes, there are going to be some laws out there which are technically illegal, right? Technically, if you ask military junta if murdering people in the streets is legal or not, they would say that's perfectly legal, right? But we also need to take a moral stance on a human rights basis, what we tolerate to be acceptable or not acceptable, right? And Apple as a company that makes $55 billion per year in profits should not be catering to the lowest common denominator and bending to dictators' wills, right? They should be taking probably a moral stand on certain things, or at least not preventing companies like Proton from taking that moral stand when you want to take the stand, right? So this is why I think you know, we need to look at it more than just what is written on the walls in the books on a certain country. We got to look at it. Does that law actually make sense if we consider human rights? And human rights is something that you know, doesn't need to be defined in any particular law. It's a universal concept, right? So that's one part. Now, Abuse is also very tricky. Abuse can occur on platforms, ProtonMail included, right? And that's also an example of where we wouldn't always want to toe the law, but we may want to go beyond that. And what do I mean by that? Today, if you were to send spam to somebody, that's actually not illegal, right? It may be illegal if the spam was abusive enough, threatening violence, or whatever, right? But even if it were illegal, by the time I would receive a court order obliging me to shut down that spammer, they might have been active already for six months to a year, right? And they may even go to court to contest that court order and drag it out for two years, right? If we leave a spammer untouched on ProtonMail for two years, uh, I can tell you the company will not survive, right? We will be blocked and banned by every other email provider in the world just because it's a problem. So 
it's tempting to say, okay, we should just always follow the law and just do what the law says, right? But yeah, I'm just giving you a very explicit example of where sometimes that's simply not possible. Um, and it's a very tricky issue, but you know, we look at it kind of from you know, a, a moral standpoint. When I shut down a spammer, I'm not engaged in any human rights violation, right? When Apple pulls an app out of Hong Kong under Chinese pressure, that's a human rights violation. So I think you know, we need to base judgments really on principles of human rights, which are internationally recognized. So it seems like Proton Mail has an easier time deciding where this moral line is because you've already predecided that people have a right to communication and protected communication. And we're going to operate in all the countries that don't explicitly shut us down. So for a company who doesn't have as clear a product as you, it's, uh, I think, a little bit murkier. But I would say everybody has to evaluate for themselves what, um, where their line is. So if you've already drawn your line of the sand, what about um, a game that's just started that's trying to rival something like uh, whatever the kids are playing these days? I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, it shouldn't be a line in the sand, right? So. What is Apple's line in the sand? Apple's line in the sand is whatever makes them the most money, right? Everything else be damned, right? And our line in the sand is, you know, we don't care about how much money we make or don't make. We care about doing the right thing because that is the value in which Proton is founded. That is the value in which, you know, people come and work for us. That is what our users expect from us, right? And I think fundamentally in the 21st century, there's just a misconception about business, right? All throughout the 20th century, we predicated success on financial terms, right? You know, whether a CEO was good or bad, whether a company was successful or not, was really measured by just one yardstick. And that was how many billions of dollars of profits they could bring in. And I think that is a fundamentally flawed and wrong way of measuring success, right? We need to measure success based off of what is the positive impact that a company can give to, to society. And that should be the metric in which us as consumers judge a company and decide whether or not we want to give our money and our business to that company. And the great thing about this is this is something that all of us as individual consumers are empowered to do, right? If a company doesn't have the right morals, I don't have to spend money there. I don't have to give my business there. I can control through my own purchasing actions what is the definition of success in the 21st century. And that is something that, as citizens, we are all empowered to do. So I think that's an incredibly powerful concept. And I also believe very strongly that in the 21st century, you know, we will begin to see the definition of success being redefined, and the world will be better because of it. Yeah, I think on the, on the Apple and the, the Burma issue, or sorry, the Myanmar issue, I mean, is it a line in the sand? Yeah, I think it kind of is. But I'm also kind of worried that if we have reached the point where not supporting killing people is a line in the sand that's hard for somebody to just go, oh, yeah, I, I, I don't want that to happen. Um, and I mean, this this goes beyond that, because like, as you mentioned, you know, Apple is motivated by profits. And I know here in the U.S. there was legislation that was working to limit their ability to use forced labor, a.k.a. slavery in China. And. Apple actively worked against that legislation because it was going to harm the bottom line. Now, if you ask any person in the United States whether slavery is bad, I'm pretty sure that probably 100% are going to say, yeah, that's not a good thing. But yet, where's the public outcry about what Apple is doing? Well, there really isn't any. Well, and, and that's because, first of all, people are not aware, right? I think if they were aware of the issue, it'd be different. And I would say, you know, 
a part of the problem is also a failure of journalists to tell the story sufficiently, right? And also, why is journalism failing today? Journalism is failing because it ultimately depends on, you know, clicks and ads, right? And clicks and ads are controlled by these same tech giants that the journalists are supposed to be holding accountable, right? So if you're a journalist, you really can't bite the hand that feeds you. But if you don't bite the hand that feeds you, then you perpetuate the power of the people who, who are, you know, caging society, right? So that's why, to a certain extent, I think the journalist system is fundamentally broken. And that is why, to a large extent, I am a supporter of public journalism, right? I think, take the BBC in the UK, for example, right? I think journalism should be publicly financed because it is in many ways a public service, right? And without public journalism, journalism doesn't have a future given the way that things are currently going. And this is the reason why Apple is able to do that. But then they can turn around and spend $100 million on an ad campaign, painting themselves as treating workers right. And then consumers will not know the difference because the truth doesn't get reported. And this is why there is such a dangerous degradation to the quality of, of journalistic content you know, in the past five, 10 years. Because effectively, the whole business model of journalist, journalism has changed, but it's not completely captured by you know, the ads model to some extent. So I, I'm curious about the public journalism angle. I, I agree with you as, a, as an ideal. However, in our currently fractious state of Congress, with such high politicization, wouldn't the funding of journalism also be highly politicized and therefore tilted? Wouldn't that uh, have the opposite effect, I would think? Well, you know, everything today is politicized, right? Uh, and, you know, I don't think you can do anything. Uh, for example, you know, some things that really should not be political become politicized. For example, antitrust on big tech, right? How is this even a political issue anymore, right? It, it should be obvious to everybody that it's necessary, but yet it's politicized, right? So that I think is a, that's a reflection on the state of politics, you know, not just in the US, but, you know, uh, globally around the world. It, it's very disappointing to see that. Fundamentally, I think democratic structures and processes are still working. We see a lot of pushback against the establishment, uh, you know, not just in the US, but in countries around the world. Uh, you know, citizens are getting more and more fed up. And I believe some of this anger will begin to translate more and more in the ballot box. And I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful, of course, uh, that you know, we may see change and we may get a new generation of politicians uh, you know, in the future, which will actually be accountable to the citizens, right? 100% agree with that. And I realized that I was coming from an American-centric point of view there. I apologize, because uh, you're not in America. So, uh, no, no, we're in Switzerland, yeah. And not all of our listeners are in America either. So, uh, But I imagine that there's quite a lot of politicization at most governmental national levels these days. Yes, and... You know, the reason for this is also, in fact, an issue with big tech. There's a concept of filter bubbles, right? And it's algorithms. So, you know, if you have, let's say, left-wing views, right, or, or right-wing views, then tech companies, to keep you engaged, clicking on ads, clicking on links, will tend to show you more and more articles which reinforce your views because the algorithm learns what you like and shows you more of what you like, right? And if you do this across a society of hundreds of millions of people, then that is what drives polarization because people are less and less able to see the opposing you know, viewpoint, right? If you're, let's say, Fox News or CNN, for example, your audience is probably you know, uh, right-wing or left-wing, right? You don't really have an incentive to put out an article expressing the other view, because that, that's not what your audience likes. They may not click on it as much, right? Then you may not get as much ad revenue from that. So it's actually this whole model that is causing the polarization. So in fact, if we solve one problem, we solve many problems, right? Mm -hmm. And this is why it's fundamentally such a big threat to you know, democracy. Yeah, thankfully for this show, that's that's not really a problem because Jeff and I make zero dollars from this show. So I have no problem jumping into an issue that is going to upset or offend people because I found that 
that usually ends up creating a lot of really good discussion because one of the things that Jeff and I foster in the show is anyone can write in and let us know their thoughts on what we've said. And then we have feedback episodes where we, we cover that. And I'm sure that this episode is going to get some interesting feedback from our listeners. <laughs> and if you're willing, I'd love to be able to reach back out to you with some of that and get your input on what their thoughts were. Yeah, of course. Myself, personally, I try to educate myself on both sides of the issue, right? I, I'm interested in all viewpoints. If there's feedback, uh, people disagree with me, I want to hear that, right? Because that's, that's how I learn. You know, that's how I, as a scientist, the search for truth always comes through information and discovery and, you know, scientific process, right? And that requires looking at all evidence, not just the evidence that one likes, right? And, you know, if you get some interesting feedback, uh, feel free to pass it over, right? Because, you know, um, I'm actually, I'm honestly interested in seeing what people think, right? Uh, because, again, it's my perspective, but there's many professors on this issue. That's why it's so controversial and so complex, right? I love that you're doing that. I love that. Because there's a lot of people that, that they want their filter bubbles. They're happy to live in them. And uh, it's, it's refreshing to see someone who wants to break his and experience outside. Yeah, well, you know, most people would advise against discussing these type of topics, right? Because if they say, you're just going to get in trouble, right? But uh, I feel like, uh, you know, we need to get in some trouble because if you play it always too safe, it just doesn't work out. It's not good for the world. I agree 100%. Yeah, so I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with Jeff and I today. I mean, I have a, a Proton Plus account. I love what you guys are doing. The, the Proton Drive and the calendar, the beta access has been great. I'm loving them. I'm really looking forward to seeing all the things that you guys are able to do. And for anyone who's listening that doesn't have a Proton account, I strongly recommend you go check out what they're doing. They do great work. Andy, again, thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us and for all the work you're doing. Thank you very much, sir. Great. Thanks for having me.